It's episode 10 of The Boost with my guest, Melvin Varghese, founder of Selling the Couch. Let's go. All right. Welcome to The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health. This is Melvin Varghese, and uh, couldn't be happier to have Melvin on the show or as I just learned moments ago, sometimes he goes by Mel. So um, we became fast friends on a first phone call. I think the 60 minutes flew, felt like five or 10 minutes that we had talked, but we covered so much ground. And so I'm so happy, uh, Melva, to have you on the show uh, for the first time. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm great, Steve. And I echo everything you shared. I really am just so grateful. You know, there are moments in life where you connect with certain people and you're like, man, like, how do we not know each other? And then also there's like a familiarity and uh, you're one of those people. And I've just been, you know, it's been amazing to see all the things that you are doing uh, for the field. And I'm more than anything, just grateful for our friendship and that we can, you know, go everything from talking business one minute to mindfulness and <laughs> existential things the next one. So appreciate all of that. Man, I feel the same way. This is one of the conversations that I felt like I don't even need to prep for this one. <laughs> this time's going to fly by. Uh, but yeah, I just echo that sentiment. And um, I do want to be sort of a running partner for you, hopefully bring you some ideas uh, just in life generally and, and share what I'm thinking with you. And I know I get a ton of value out of what you share. And then, and then some ways it's more like I'm water skiing behind the Melvin boat while you're you've been doing this for a long time podcasting and we'll talk about your businesses and your courses uh, everything you're creating and offering from a productization standpoint and then also yeah the, yeah the existential mindfulness and the um you know your clinical expertise and background you know brings brings a lot of that and in, in addition to probably your nature as well um so yeah, there's again, it's just too much. We're, we're going to have too much to talk about. And that's a great thing. Um, but we will start with uh, the way we always start, which is the virtual hug and the shameless plug. So if you're new listening to this show, uh, the virtual hug is simply Melvin, tell us somebody or something you're thankful for today. Oh, I love by the way, I love that you have names for these are beautiful. And I love that we start with gratitude. Um, Man, I was going back and forth, but I got to say, like my partner, uh, my partner, Susan, uh, we have been together since 2009, uh, married since 2012. And, you know, I, I mentioned her because honestly, selling the couch would not exist were it not for her because one, um, you know, we, we had the good fortune of her, her salary, right? So I could turn this little, side gig into into what I wanted to do and become a full-time thing uh, over the past seven years, eight years now. Uh, and, she, you know, she saw something in me before I saw it in myself. And I, and I feel like our loved ones often can see that, you know, and, and yeah, there's just, honestly, there's just no way this would, ex this would exist without her and love and support and just, you know, gentle like urging and you know she's an attorney by profession so she you know make sure that i got all my legal ducks in a row and all that hey. stuff as well that's awesome so your partner is bringing you a, a ton of gifts and her and mm -hmm. her own strengths and and part of that is uh, watching your back and then part of that is looking out ahead maybe and seeing oh yeah this these are these are your skills and strengths sometimes it's easier to see in somebody else than ourselves i can certainly relate to that and and those having those people in your life that can um, give you some guidance and and do it with love um, and and help you on the, on the path. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I needed that because you know there's a part of me I always I saw some potential gifts, but then I was that was quickly overwhelmed by doubt and fear, and so I I don't think I ever had like. A lot of my life, I don't know that I ever had like a full clarity on what my gifts were because of that that juxtaposition, you know. Hmm. Yeah, man, right there with you. Yeah, I didn't have the 
clarity, even from a vocation or career standpoint, you know, and I, I saw kids that did, and it confounded me kids in fourth or fifth grade, high level of confidence. Yes. I'm going to be an engineer when I grow up. And I thought I have no idea other than, you know, maybe something with sports or music, or I don't know, you know, I, and, uh, but those have elements of, um, they just have the seeds of, of who I am, you know, and I'm still, you know, I'm 44 right now. So still uncovering the path and, and have had to switch paths. You know, I call it moving off of the competitive path, which was this forceful, um, ego driven, um, sort of corporate climbing approach in a sales capacity and none of that fit who I was. And I know in your story, you talk a little bit about the nine to five grind. Um, oh, but let's put a pin in that or else I'll get out of order. So tell me and, and tell our listeners and viewers, uh, the shameless plug, which is just, just, you, you know, you live, breathe, dream, sleep, selling the couch and everything else you're doing. Tell us about the work you're doing for anybody who's never met Melvin before. Yeah. Um, well, so I'm, you know, more than anything, I always like to say I'm a girl dad first. So we have a, a four-year-old daughter and that's an important part of my story because uh, she was also seven and a half weeks early. So she was premature, three pounds, 12 ounces. And it impacted a lot about how I built my business and how I'm thinking about building my business. And so selling the couch at its core is about seeing our clinical skill set in a different way. So helping therapists go from clinical to online income. Uh, I specifically focus on podcasting and online courses as a way to grow that income and impact. And uh, this was all driven by a a simple conversation uh, a long time ago with a supervisor who, you know, taught me a lot, uh, an older supervisor. And they said, you know, I'll always remember to see your training as a skill set that you can deploy in other realms besides what a therapist is supposed to do. And mm-hmm. so I took that and ran with it. And I just, I don't know, like, you know, I always, with training and everything, I always thought therapy, supervision, testing, teaching, those are kind of the three options or four options, right? But yeah, with selling the couch, you know, we, we've grown it and I have two products. I have a DIY kind of do it your own pace uh, podcasting course for therapists. And then we have an online course mastermind for therapists because so many therapists want to launch an online course, but struggle to find a community and a place to be with other therapists who want to do this ethically and, you know, want to do it authentically and in a way that's sustainable. And uh, we built that over the last past two years. So That's awesome. So, so talk a little bit more about um, uh, rewinding to 2015 when you're thinking about starting your business. Um, take us to that place. And what was it that pushed you over the edge or the ledge to, you know, spread your wings and, and start your business? You, you mentioned your daughter is a big influence, but I think she's four. So that was probably 2019. So you'd put put in some years already. Um, and you have a super supportive partner, which is amazing. Um, but what was it inside yourself that was um, either in turmoil or um, was growing into this in, into this idea that becomes your business? Yeah, so I was in a group, a group private practice at the time I was doing doing clinical work, so therapy, and then I was doing bariatric surgery wells. And I you know, moved from, from Nashville to Philadelphia in 2012. So this was about three years later, 2015. And uh, we got hit with a nor'easter in, in the Northeast, and it ended up dumping a little over 30 inches of snow in literally a day and a half. And, you know, like the systems were not here with the telehealth and everything, right? So I could basically do phone therapy or um, see my clients in person. And the roads were very slick. We had down power lines. 
Um, it was just very dangerous to drive. I ended up having to cancel uh, 22 uh, fee-for-service clients. And we were saving up for the 20% down payment on our home. And I realized in that moment, like I had to do something differently because, you know, I just, I knew my, with my own mental health, I knew my own wiring that I couldn't, that trying to build an entire business where it's contingent on trading time for income it is either a formula for burnout or it's a formula for a lot of volatility. Yeah. Okay. So there was the force function of, um, client, client attrition, client loss. And then the most powerful thing maybe that jumps out to me is the self-knowledge, you know, the know thyself fundamentals of, you know, even though it's not always crystal clear, you know, as we've said for you or not, you or I, um, you did have the insight to say, okay, this is what I know about myself and I'm going to align my profession with what I know about myself to this point um, with the insight that some of this training, some of this biopsychosocial analysis and assessments um, could come in handy, even if it's for nothing more than spotting the challenge in your own life, maybe, and, and, and recognizing that probably a lot of other people are going through it. Was there a, was there a component of that, that you saw other people in your roles with similar struggles? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, um, first of all, I think you're giving me way too much credit because you know, that's that wise supervisor shared that information about seeing it as a skill set. This was back in like 2008, right? So I sat on that idea and went into like traditional clinical work, right? From 2008 yeah. to 2015, because I was just, I don't know, maybe too scared. But yeah, at when I was in the group practice, I had two friends and we would meet once a month because most, you know, any of, none of us had taken a business or marketing class. And so I saw, and what we would do during these meetings is just like, you know, read a chapter out of, you know, Lynn Grotsky's book or you know, watch a YouTube, like a YouTube video on some business thing, right? Because we all wanted to start our businesses. And so I saw them struggle to, you know, uh, to try to understand this. I saw sort of the metric of working for a group practice. You know, I know there are a lot of exceptional group practices um, and there's also not exceptional ones, right? That's just the reality. And, um, and I saw the struggle of that. And I, I realized, I just, I, I wanted you know, my, one of my big mantras is to, you know, build a life or build a career around my life versus fitting, you know, life around a career. And I think that really resonated for me in that season. Um, I remember even that was 2015. So probably, I don't know, 2005, 2006, something like that. I remember reading this book about like, and I forgot the exact title, but something about the Renaissance soul, right? Like, you know, basically life design or career design for people that have too many passions. Right? Oh, wow. I need this book. Go on. Yeah. 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 And I, I, again, I read that book and I think it subconsciously, I think my mind was always trying to figure out how do I use my natural giftings? You know, like I took a lot of art classes. I do photography, like all of these different skill sets um, into, into the work that I'm doing in the world. Um, and I loved therapy and I loved testing. Um, and yet there was a part of me, I felt, um, it's the best way to put it is like successful, but unfulfilled. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So man, it's uncanny. Uh, like the parallel paths that we're, that we're sort of on, um, you know, even to be running a, a video conversation right now, you know, it came out of a couple things. One is I've just always had a passion ever since I was a kid, you know, we would get my friend's camcorder, my friend's parents camcorder out and we would make, you know, silly stop action videos, or we would make, uh, these, these video dramas and, and then fast forward to sort of the YouTube craze. And I just found myself making these silly, silly videos. And it's almost like, what am I doing with my time and my life? And 
but along the way I was learning to chop up post-production video and, you know, do some better things with audio. Uh, although I do want to circle back to your studio because it's, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. You have all the audio and the lighting and the video figured out. So there's probably some things I could definitely learn from you and, and employ, but you know, you just don't know, or I just don't know all of what is going to happen in the future based on the skills that are coming into my life just based on pursuit of passion. And it sounds similar to you where, you know, you do have an eye for the visual and photography and, and things like that. And it, it shows up in just right now, how, how you show up, um, you know, in a high quality way for this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I think, um, I, I watched this, uh, recent YouTube video by Dr. Ali Abdal. So Ali is a Cambridge educated physician who started a YouTube channel in med school, basically teaching about his experience as a med student. And after he got into residency, his YouTube channel was making like significantly more, right? And he was working the hours that he wants. So he actually gave up medicine and he, um, and he's like 31, he's quite young. So, um, he did a recent video called, um, and one of the points of that video is you want to develop skills in the universal toolbox. And I was like, that's such a great way of looking at it because, uh, right, you and I, right, that camcorder that you were playing with, right, it was something out of passion and interest, but it also helped you get that eye, right, to see how to see, capture things visually, to be able to you know, edit video. So I think about all this stuff all the time now, raising a daughter, you know, like how do I give her skills that, you know, can compound over time and that cross industries? Mm -hmm. I think I've talked with Dr. Ali, if it's the same person, is he out of LA maybe uh, now? No, he's in different yeah, one. London. London. He's in London still. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There was another, uh, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on his name. I thought it was Dr. Ali. Maybe it is. Um, but just super prolific YouTube um, producer and creator. Um, so you've been doing, did you start podcasting in 2015 yourself? Or when did that start for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, uh, so March of 2015, it was when I released my first episode. Um, I had the idea in September of 2014 but, you know, like most of us, when we have a good idea, I sat on it for six months. I convinced myself to not do it. So <laughs> It's just in the uh, mud there. You know, it's just sprouting yeah. little seeds in the mud. Yeah, exactly. That is a that's a great reframe. Um, and I, I joke about it. But honestly, like Steve, I was terrified because one, you know, English is my second language. Right. So I had that sort of thing of like, it's not my native language. Like, what if I mess up, you know, especially in a platform like this? The second one is I don't have like the typical radio masculine deep bass voice, right? And so I was like, okay, who's going to listen to this? And then three, I had no background in radio, any of that stuff, right? I I mean, I like tech, but I had no experience in any of that stuff. So those were three big things that, 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 you know, that I really had to work through in those six months. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Some of those ring of maybe some kind of, uh, imposter syndrome, you know, I'm not, I don't have the voice for radio or I don't have the skill set for any of this. Yeah. And and some of that's you know sometimes true you know maybe we don't have the skill set but um, most of those things are things we can learn and there's something I say at at every conference that I run which is you don't have to be perfect to be amazing you know if you could actually pull back the curtain and see how much I'm learning simply by seeking out the solution or the answer because this is what I do. And, mm. you know, I always go back to this, uh, this Jay-Z lyric, there's no church in the wild, you know, like when you're, when you're working without a net or when you're in the wild, it's very different than, than the lion in the zoo, you know, who's, mm. who's very comfortable, 
but is that the life you want to live? You know, and Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, don't talk to me about comfort until you look at animals in the zoo. And, you know, I love a good zoo. No, I'm not complaining about zoos. I'm saying when you're out there in the wild without a safety net, I get hyper-focused on mm -hmm. things that when I was in an office environment felt so, um, felt like it, um, it either confused or trapped me somehow. And I'm the same exact person tackling very similar problems. Um, but I come at it so differently. Have, have you noticed that in your approach to problem solving or relationships or things like that since you're on your own? Yeah. I mean, I love that you shared that because, and I think what you're saying is, which is something and correct me if I'm wrong, but like one thing I struggled with is I had this real fear that if I got into a situation like that, where I would be on my own and no safety net, I would just crumble. Right. Oh and, yeah. Right. Like, but I've actually found the exact same was what you're describing, which is you become more resilient and you don't figure that out. Every, like each of these experiences, right? Like even the hard moments are all experiences that give us data, right? And give us new skills. And you just learn, uh, I don't know, it, it's taken a lot of years for me to realize this, that if I put, realizing that if I put my mind to something, I can do it well. Whereas like in the first few years, it was like, oh, can I do this? Like, you know, is this going to be good enough? Like, do I have the skills, you know, mm -hmm. am I going to crumble? Yeah. And, and some of that confidence does come from the experience. Um, but, but so often I've, I've been right there and I'm in that process. I'm mid journey for sure. And I will say, I do think this is, you know, if you look back at maybe Jung or any number of psychoanalysts, you know, 40, this, this time in my life or our life, you know, this kind of fall season in life is, it can be tremendously powerful in terms of, you know, finding your new priority or that, um, that, uh, undiscovered priority that's always been within you. So the, yeah, part of the part of the confidence comes from the experience, certainly. And the idea there, though, is that when we're looking, at least this is my experience, is that when I'm in my current state and I look across the chasm to see where I would hope to be, it looks so far away that I'm not thinking about the incremental marginal work, you know, the steps to, to build and cross the bridge from where I am now to where I want to go. So the, the change management in my mind and the abyss in between where I am and where I want to be is, is so deep sometimes that it's hard to, to cross rather than saying, okay, that is the end goal. That's the, the end I have in my mind. And now how do I put together little steps. And that seems like what you're doing with your mastermind and with your healthcasters or your podcast courses. Um, to talk about how you talk about how you structure that. How do you get those little steps in place for people? And um, it's such a heavy lift, it seems like to productize something yeah. like that. So talk about what what is what is it like to build a mastermind course or an online course? And what are some of the the struggles um, that you see other people run into, and then maybe, I don't know, anything you've kind of come across that you've had to overcome? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, I'm actually glad you're bringing this up because I think one thing I still struggle with is it's really social media. It's people don't, you know, like consciously do this all the time, but it's full of highlights, right? And we compare these highlights to how we feel on the inside. Right. And there's a disconnect there. And we're like, well, if this person's succeeding and I'm not succeeding, there's something wrong with me kind of thing. Right. And I mean, I call, you know, with the Healthcasters course, it has been an eight year journey of developing a course, thinking through it, planning it. Um, the one thing I've been, I always try to tell myself and tell our, tell colleagues is like, don't compare someone's version 10 to your version one, right? 
And so with the help, with the, with the course, uh, it started because right around when I launched a podcast, colleagues started reaching out to me asking, can I consult with you on launching my own podcast? And I was like, only a couple of months in, I'm still learning this thing, you know, so I'm not, you know, but they were, you know, there was a trust, I guess they felt. And, um, and so I, yeah, I did some paid consults and I was like, uh, and I think I charged like $200 because that was like a lot of money and stuff, yeah. you know, right. And, and I was surprised, right. And if people were willing to pay for it and, um, and it was great because I got to like, you know, s- connect with people, uh, see what they're thinking about. And uh, a lot of those first consults became my first buyers for the course. So we had um, eight initial buyers for the course. It was two ninety seven. Um, I didn't do it like correctly, which is the way that I teach now is like in hindsight, right? Like what I sure. probably would have done is the... I would have done the one-on-one consults and then I would have done a beta launch of the group, like with the live teaching and then turn it digital. Um, that's the method because that way you're building, that way you also get the live teaching. You can figure out what the, what lessons need to be emphasized, what needs to be de-emphasized. And then you're also getting testimonials and case studies so that when you launch your digital course, you've got that on the sales page, right? Whereas okay. I didn't have any of this. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's like the big stuff. I mean, the, I'm, I'm, I'm like happy to go into deeper things. I mean, cause I struggled with lots of things. I mean, one is even down to picking course platforms to, you know, this setup that, you know, that you see now is eight years, right? The, for the first five years, it was a webcam. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You start sort of minimum viable product and and work up and there's to go back to kind of the start of what you said i i i kind of think of this zuckerberg effect where there's this giant bell curve of distribution of successful entrepreneurs and of course there's going to be one who's outshining everybody else with their platform uh you know especially at the start and then we we don't really focus on the other side of that bell curve at all where all the failure is uh, except subconsciously for me you know the fear of oh this is certainly going to fail and not be profitable and um what am i doing it's a big mistake uh but i tend to overestimate my capabilities and look toward the long tail of success also with um not just humility but uh shame i guess is the right feeling that's like oh well i'm not I'm not doing that well. So that must mean I'm not doing well when really there's this, this meaty middle of, uh, doing the work that, you know, most people would probably fall into simply based on the distribution and, and luck and, um, you know, social determinants and all sorts of things that mix in. So uh, that's a great reminder just to try to focus on improving myself and and uh marking myself in that bell curve and improving along the way um so talk talk about your tech stack a little bit what um what are you running um like microphone lighting how did you get that like beautiful zen background and the color scheme and then what are you using to record and all of that help like give us the give us the tech rundown yeah uh in terms of podcasting podcasting yeah yeah um again so I can, you know, for, let me see if I can pull this without, you know, pulling my <laughs> microphone here. So this was my mic for the first five years. So yeah. it was, you know, $50, $50 dollars mic on Amazon uh, and the Audio-Technica ATR 2100. Uh, and I actually love that mic. And the... I, the big benefit is it's a USB mic, right? So you just okay. plug it into the USB slot in your computer. You avoid all of the other, like you just create the minimum viable thing, right? Cause then the real thing with podcasting is you want to focus on is actually becoming a good interviewer and becoming a better storyteller, right? Huh. The gear is actually secondary. Yeah. Um, at least in those initial stages. 
Now, over the years, I've upgraded the gear. So uh, my mic that I'm like speaking into now is the Shure SM7B. Uh, this is, uh, it's a pretty f well-known mic. The most famous is uh, Michael Jackson used it to record Thriller um, on it. And so, uh, and yeah, I, I, I love this mic. Uh, it's connected to a Rode PSA-1, which is the mic arm that I'm using. Um, the reason, so I used to have a cheaper mic arm when I, when I used this ATR. And the problem is it started sagging over time. And whereas this one I've had for a couple of years and it's pricey, I think around a hundred bucks, but it just stays where I want it to. And at a practical level, the reason I chose a mic arm versus a, a stand is because oftentimes I'll have my iPad or I'll have, I'll be writing notes on my desk because I have a glass top on my desk and it's easier to have my whole like desk clear versus... Yep having a stand, right? So that's I'm the uh, same. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, I use the Rodecaster Pro, um, just the, the first version. So the problem, you know, the challenge with these mics are they sound beautiful, but they require a lot more tech. So this is what's known as an XLR mic. So you need basically um, something, a, a tool or a, yeah, to convert that signal into a signal that the computer understands. So I use the Rodecaster Pro and then um, light uh, lighting wise. So I actually, I have a second mic that I use when I'm just doing videos. Um, so that's usually not for podcasting, but uh, that one is the Sennheiser MKH416. Um, so I've got a second arm and I will pull in the mic here. Um, and it's usually like under, you know, people won't see it, but it kind of hovers over me. Okay. Uh, and then the light that I use is the Aperture 120D. Uh, I think that's right. The 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 uh, key benefit of having these soft lights are you can change the intensity. So I've got a remote here. So you know I was doing this right before we started, right? Like I can turn up, turn up and down the dial on it so I can make it you know lighter, darker as I need. Oh yeah. You know, so cool. Uh, it just makes it a lot more gives that more cinematic look uh, yeah and then i'm the final thing is i'm using a you know a dslr camera versus a webcam and that's what's creating that blur effect so i've got you know a, i i use a nikon just because that's what i have for my landscape photography but if i were purchasing something and i wanted like something really nice i would go with the sony lines um, okay. i just think they're way better for video so okay well, I'll uh, I'll track down all those links to products uh, in the post, and I'll I'll drop those into this because that's really helpful. And uh, yeah, there's some moves I need to make. Um, I'm running USB audio, and you know, super harsh lighting, um, and you know, I'm happy that it makes you look really good. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, so. If there's like an uh, I, so I would do sound. Uh, I. Yeah, yeah. I'll probably do lighting sound video. That's probably okay. the, the order that I would consider upgrading. Okay. So. And you mentioned you do some video, but I also remember maybe a LinkedIn post recently where you said you sort of uh, talked about wanting to do more video or thinking about wanting to do more video. Why haven't you jumped to video yet? Or what's the what's the dialogue or debate in your mind about about video for yeah, conversations uh, like this? Uh, oh, this is just being raw and real, right? So mm -hmm. one, uh, I'm like an introvert. So like the thought of being on video terrifies me. Um, I think I have like, I, I don't know. I don't have that video look like physically, I feel like, you know, yeah. I don't uh, know. Yeah. So I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I get like a little bit scared still to be on video even though people say like I am really good on video um there's still that that part of me I'm still a little little reluctant but uh yeah I would say that's like the the, the main stuff uh in the early days of podcasting um and again just being open and honest like I would not a lot of times I wouldn't turn on the video because I would get so anxious with seeing yeah. somebody's face or mm -hmm. just knowing the fact it was recording it would intimidate me and I would get 
locked up, like I'd forget the question I was asking. I'd have anxiety around it. And uh, yeah, but I've noticed the more I've done podcasting and the more comfortable I am with video. Mm -hmm. Um, And then strategically, there's that part too, because pod, I mean, YouTube just, you know, they just hired like a head of podcasting. And if you look on your YouTube app, now there's a section for podcasts, you know, and these are basically video audio video conversations right like podcasts on video and it makes logical sense i mean i'm doing the work already with podcasting i can just turn on the video and we have all the videos so we're just gonna you know cut it and then um you know strategically do video both on youtube and on linkedin so that's nice okay well yeah you are great on video i i think i could totally relate to the introvert theme and that keeping us maybe off the off the uh limelight i love to uh not look at myself on camera i I like to hide myself and uh, and just look at the guest or you know go through the notes or or sometimes look right at the camera and that's a good place for me to just kind of put my gaze so that i can sink into the conversation without thinking about myself um but once once we get past ourselves, then it seems to it seems to get good traction. Yeah, this technically is not even a, a podcast yet until um, I'm going to do some things with distribution to get it on Spotify and iTunes and Apple and all the places that it needs to go. Um, and I don't even know what to call it. It's, you know, a podcast for video or something. I don't think we have a, a great term for it. I'm just calling it yeah. video conversations or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was like a term video podcast, but I don't think it like really stuck as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, you're, I mean, everything you said is accurate and stuff that I struggle with. And yet there's something really powerful about video, right? That when people see us and, you know, they see that side, uh, podcasts are amazing, the audio podcasts, because people do form connections with us, but when they see our faces too, it takes that to the next level. Well, you do a great job with that on LinkedIn. So I sometimes have had to push myself to, I've started to play around with vertical video or, you know, selfies or pictures of myself. And I, I hide behind the written word, which I love. I I love to write. So um, part of it is just my nature. Um, But then you're honestly, this is honest. This is, um, and I'm not trying to be complimentary, but it's the truth. I saw your strategy of posting pictures of yourself. And I don't know if it's just because of the nature of LinkedIn or what I thought LinkedIn needed to be. Um, but it kept resonating with me and I kept noticing it and it quickly let me get to know you a little bit. And now I'm following those footsteps and i'm amazed that more people don't do it but that's i mean that seems like a an advantage for you in in, uh helping people just get to know your face put a name with a face and and uh bring the humanity to it yeah absolutely i mean i remember reading a report like early like about six months ago and they said like selfies do like like well on linkedin and i was like okay i'll run with this (laughs) and so I, I like literally looked through my phone of like, you know, pictures like my daughter took or random selfies, like maybe I randomly took, right? And I literally have a, I, I'm looking at it right now. I have a LinkedIn selfies folder of like 20 pictures and I just go through them um, to swap them out on posts because I'm also all about like building the systems, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go and take a selfie for every post, you know, and um yeah, so I, I just try to think about it on that level. And I found the same thing. The the you know, the thing with LinkedIn is and maybe I like partly have learned this in podcasting, right? Like ultimately we all do business with people we know, like, and trust, right? And so with all of these platforms, the thing I'm always thinking about is how do I form that human connection? Yep. with someone. And I think LinkedIn, there's a lot of interesting advantages because most people's mindset is to be professional, professional, right? And, but the people that 
are, but LinkedIn has undergone this transformation, especially since the pandemic, right? It's this, it's no longer like a online resume slash job update, you know, place, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's a full-fledged social media platform now. And so I feel like the people that show the human side of things, um, I think there's a, a purport, you know, disproportionate advantage there. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I talk about this all the time, but it's Aristotle's model of persuasion, you know, and you have, mm. you have logos and that's your, that's your resume and your credentials. And hopefully you have like ethos, you know, something you're working on that's higher than yourself, you know, some higher power than, well, just, I want more money, you know, like that's not very inspiring. Uh, but then pathos is the humanity. And that's where it feels like um, we underestimate the the triangulation of pathos. With you got to be a person. Um, it does, you know. There's you don't have to expose every single bit of yourself on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. And that's fascinating that you do systems thinking with LinkedIn posts because I have seen you now that you say that a number of times, like in a rain slick jacket in the forest or something and i think that's such a fascinating that's got to be one of the pictures in your linkedin and linkedin yeah. folder um what else what else are you doing to do systems thinking um what's a system that you've come across that is uh has been surprisingly effective for you that maybe you weren't employing i don't know a year or two ago or recently yeah uh, on linkedin specifically or just no anywhere um, so I've been thinking a lot about like that, um, uh, James Clear quote, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I've been thinking a lot about is, see, most of us start our small businesses, we're technicians, we're really good at what we do. Right. But in order for our businesses to grow and, or to have us um, preserve our mental health, right? We actually have to remove ourselves from being the technician a hundred percent of the time. So the biggest transformation I've been thinking about the past couple of years and definitely last couple of months are what are the most high leverage things that I can be doing? Like what's the stuff only that I can do? And then what are the stuff that somebody else could do at 80% of the quality, 75, 80%. If, so if somebody can hit 75 to 80% of the quality, then I'm going to delegate it. So I can even share like a practical thing on LinkedIn, right? Like, which is carousel posts do really well on LinkedIn, right? Yet carousel posts take a crazy amount of time to write, right? Because you got to write it. You got to put, put it into Canva or whatever. Make a PDF. <laughs> yeah. PDF it. Right. Which, and they don't make it at all easy. So they don't No. Uh, so I've been thinking and for the first several months, I did it all. I wrote it, I designed it, uh, I posted it, scheduled it, and now. But I think every business has to do that. Like I was reading something by um, uh, one of the guys from Shift Thirty, and they talked about they were part of this. Like they paid like seventy eight grand or something to be part of this mastermind of like seven figure business owners, and they were sharing these like frameworks. And one of the frameworks they shared is you know, anytime you go into something new usually end up doing a hundred percent of it and then you delegate it over time to someone else and then then that person then brings on somebody else right so you're yep. sort of like the third level over time and we're in that transition now so with link with these carousel posts i'm moving to i'm the idea guy so on my hikes i've got a private slack channel to just myself love it right uh and i've got you know little sub channels in there so one of them is carousel post ideas and so as i'm on my hike i get an idea i'm maybe listening to a podcast i'm like oh that'd be a good carousel post i'll write it in there i love slack because you can also record audio into there right um but what i then do is either i'll record audio into there or i'll just create a loom like i you know after our conversation i'll set aside i've got about an hour hour and a half every week um where i will slack like the three talking points on that topic, get, send it over to my VA, um, who will then uh, draft the first version of the carousel post. 
Brilliant. Yeah, and then we will uh, we use Floxy. I've mentioned you know I know yeah. we talked we mentioned Floxy. So Floxy also has a copywriter. So we, eventually they will be the third person, right? And they also have a design team. Um, I've already created kind of a template that I like, but eventually they will um, they will uh, create that carousel post. My VA will do the final pass, and all I'm going to be is the idea guy. You know, yeah, writing to yourself. I mean, there's that's a wonderful audience of one just to, you know, send send yourself Slack messages. Um, <laughs> it is. I do that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I do that not in Slack, but I do it in like my just my phone notes. You know, just yeah. writing stream of consciousness stuff, and then sometimes ideas come to the yeah. forefront. What's the What's the next thing that you're outsourcing? Big, big rock that you want to outsource? You know, not not just uh, maybe carousel design, but what's sort of on your trajectory? And I don't know really what your end game is. It sounds like you definitely have some uh, driving forces and values in your life, you know, some priorities. But what's the next yeah. big boulder you need to ship out? Oh, maybe, yeah, well, maybe I can just share briefly the end game. Like, so for me, I think it's ultimately designing a life around my family. Um, I, you know, as I shared at the beginning, like, because our daughter was born seven and a half weeks early, I went down to a four day work week. So we could do daddy daughter days on Fridays. And the first year and a half was like PT because she um, had low muscle tone. And so we had to do a lot of early childhood intervention. And then we turned that into um, from that to trips to gardens and museums and all this kind of stuff. And what I realized is, you know, God willing, like, you know, I'll have 14 more years with her before we ship her to college. And I want to like really maximize that time and there's stuff. Uh, so even, you know, she's starting summer school or summer vacation. So I'm going to go back to, you know, daddy daughter days on Fridays. Um, and we're going to do more exploring. So all of that to say, like, I'm actually trying to, I, re I recently released a podcast episode that said that was basically titled why I'm done building a $1 million a year business. And the premise of that was I, a combo of stuff, but among them is what brings me the most joy is being able to spend having a very simplified business that allows me to spend a lot of time with my loved ones, you know, mm -hmm. and on self care. And I don't need, I thought for a long time I needed $1 million a year to prove to myself that I had succeeded. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is I wanted a more holistic view of what success is, you know? mm -hmm. because you and I know a lot of very successful people um, that on the surface are extremely successful, but internally are miserable or they have broken relationships or, you know, and I don't want that. So that's number one. And then number two is um, our big dream is to create a scholarship fund for girls that have been rescued from brothels in the commercial yeah. sex trade. So when I was in grad school, um, I took a psychology of trauma and abuse class, and I then went and worked with an NGO in Bombay, India, which is the Kamatipura, which is the largest red light district in in South Asia, um, mm. concentrated. And so Kamatipura is a section of Mumbai of slash Bombay. And uh, I I was majority of my time was spent about five hours away teaching kids that had been rescued from brothels. So these were unwanted pregnancies and this NGO works by removing these kids, giving them an education to help their, their parents to break out of that, that cycle as well. And so that's our big dream is, you know, um, to create a scholarship fund for these girls, uh, so that, you know, they have the opportunities that our daughter will have as well. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful driver. Um, yeah, you, you are squarely in that model of persuasion not that you need to be persuasive you can do it without trying you know it's it's like power without force um but the 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 things you're working on what's driving you of course your of course your education and you know you did your your postdoc and your internship in in nashville which is always a fun uh, connection um and and then your family being core to everything that you are and what you're building um yeah i it may be two months ago you know i i saw i saw you on linkedin um and thought i had already talked with you but i thought 
there's no way, you know, no way I'd get Melvin on this show. You know, it's so cool because there's this, it's a small world, you know? And so there's, there's influencers in this space, you know, several come to mind, uh, Megan Cornish or Michael Fulweiler, or, you know, you people who are doing great things, helping, um, private practitioners and helping therapists think in new ways about their businesses and get more efficient and get better at their marketing and get better at their productization. Uh, so it's so cool to have you on and talk today. Um, I want to wrap with one question and you can take it wherever you want. Um, Tell us one thing you are reading or listening to, and it can be a podcast or a book, or it could be a new record. It could be anything, but um, what's one thing you're taking in these days that you're enjoying? Um, that's a great question. Uh, and before I go there, it's so funny you mentioned that because I thought, oh my gosh, like it would be so cool to you know connect with Steve and go on his podcast. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, we're both. Yeah. We just need to let more things happen, I think. Yeah, let's do more of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it's funny how like our own internal dialogues and the things that the narratives we create, right? Mm. Um, I'm uh, reading uh, Kevin Kelly's new book. Uh, So I think he's most, he was one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine. Um, He wrote that article that, you know, is big in entrepreneurial circles, Thousand True Fans. And so... Um, I, I, I'm like blanking on the name of the book right now, but it's a, it's not like a book as you think of it. It's more of like phrases and sayings that he's learned in his life. Um, and just like little pearls of wisdom. And so I don't necessarily, it's not one of those books that you just sit down and read over time. It's more of like you read a paragraph and then you write about it and let it linger. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying that, you know? Um, and you know. Uh, yeah, I've just, I, I was going to try to pull a quote out of, out of thin air, but I, I will not try it, you know, uh, but he, you know, he has some version of like, you know, don't, don't be the one, be the only, right. So really thinking like blue oceans, you know, in life and in business and hmm. yeah, I like that, you know, um, I like that. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I hadn't heard of that book and uh, I love that format where you could just sit and take in. Some, it's almost like a, it's almost like a cone, you know, it's like an entrepreneurial kind of like, here's an idea, sit with this and kind of ponder it and do some writing with it. So yeah, I'll check that out. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Well, Melvin, I hope you have a good rest of your week. Uh, I hope to talk with you soon. I hope to have you on the boost again uh, if you ever got if you ever have time. But uh, thank you for doing this. I really enjoyed talking with you again. Steve, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. And uh, yeah, I'm just so grateful again for the work you're doing in the world. I'm even more grateful for our friendship. Likewise, yeah, hundred percent. All right, take care. See ya.